One day, while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And, instant, and immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home, praising God. Everyone was gripped with this great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, We have seen amazing things today. The word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Martha. In Peter Wolberger's book, The Hidden Life of Trees, he talks about walking through the forest year after year, day after day, and seeing this same pile of oddly shaped rocks covered in moss. Having passed the piles for years, he never really gave a second thought to them until one day uh, he just bent down to inspect this oddly shaped pile of stones. Lifting the moss off the surface, he found not rocks below, but a tree bark. What he had thought for years was inorganic stones, it turned out to be a tree stump that had fallen an estimated 400 to 500 years ago. But then came another surprise. When he tried to shift the decomposing wood around, you know how decomposing wood can be really loose and just fall off, it turns out it wouldn't budge. 
Centuries after this tree had fallen, it was still somehow firmly rooted in the ground and containing its own composure. And so he got out his pocket knife and he scraped away the initial layer of bark until he arrived at a surface below that was green. Green. As in, alive, green. The tree stump was not merely covered in living things. It was, in fact, itself alive, somehow alive. But how? It has been a stump for 500 years. It had no leaves for photosynthesis, fourth grade science graduates. No leaves for photosynthesis. How could it still be alive? It turns out that root networks in trees in the forest can be so entangled and connected through underground fungi networks that even when a tree falls, having no leaves, the remaining living trees can continue to feed the stump nutrients through the roots for hundreds of years. The other trees will literally keep it, the injured, collapsed tree alive. Forests are a fascinating organic reality, aren't they? a single organism of mutually assisting life. I think one of the things I find most fascinating about this passage in Luke 5 is that it is, in fact, a passage that we probably all did here in our Sunday school days. It's one of the stories, like, if you went to Sunday school, you probably remember it. You were a child and it was probably like a painting and your Sunday school teacher showed you a painting of this story. It is a story that maybe we have walked by a million times, but we have never leaned down and paid attention to it. And because of that, there are a million little spicy things that are happening in this passage that challenge our individualism, that challenge our understanding of salvation, that challenge our notions of mutual responsibility to each other. And so my job today is get out my pocket knife and dig around a little bit and see where the life is. The story begins, Luke sets it all up by saying that a, a group of religious leaders have shown up from all over the region to hear Jesus teach. And just so you know, this little bit of Luke's, uh, this little bit of information that Luke is giving is Luke's way of saying, hey, there's a showdown about to happen. I imagine whenever I was writing this, like the Westerns where they're standing there like this, who's going to draw first? And as they're staring each other down, all of, the, all of a sudden, they begin to hear this strange noise above their head, and they look up, and it's a mistake to look up because dirt is falling from the ceiling. Dirt and sticks begin to fall, land in Jesus' hair and on his shoulders. Mud and sticks are falling on the crowd. And just as they are grasping the fact that this is mud and dirt in their hair and in their eyes, the roof itself opens to the sky beyond. 
And there were a group of men standing up there looking through the hole, digging the hole to get to Jesus. Roofs of these old houses were about two feet thick. They would have been made with timbers laid two to three feet apart from each other in a parallel fashion. And then in between them, they would have been connected with crosswise sticks, which were also themselves held together with two feet of mud. So you can imagine the work these men would have had to do to get through that roof. It turns out that apparently Jesus was so popular that day, as we're going to see through Luke, that this happens over and over, that the house is so full that you can't get in through the normal way. And so these men went around the side of the building, up to the top of the building. There would have been a stairway either on that house or somebody at the neighbor's house. They got to it and they dug two feet through, literally vandalizing someone else's house. And when the hole was big enough, they began to lower someone through it, a man on a pallet, a man who was experiencing being paralyzed, and they lowered him right down in front of Jesus. A story that is like a stone we have walked by, but have you ever noticed the life in the story? Ever notice the where Jesus notices the life. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiving. What did Jesus see? Their faith? Whose faith? Their faith. The men lowering the man through the roof. This is the first time in Luke's gospel that the word faith has been used. Five chapters in, and this is the first time Luke chooses to use this word. And he uses this word not to refer to the faith of the man he forgave, but to refer to the faith of the people who lowered that man through the roof. It refers to the collective faith of the man's root network. As we'll unpack in a minute, this is a world where bodily health was assumed to be connected to one's relationship with God where a person with disabilities was assumed to have sinned or their ancestors had sinned and that that was why they had a disability. And these men looked at their friend and they saw neither a sinner without dignity nor a person merely reduced to a disability. What they saw was a friend. Yes, a friend with needs, but a friend nonetheless. And because of their love for him, they were not deterred that day by the overly large crowd that wouldn't let them in the house to see Jesus. Because of their love for their friend, they got creative about how they could use their privilege and their abilities to get this man before Jesus. Luke, through this entire story, will tell us nothing about this young man's faith. 
Jesus sees the faith of his root network. His friends believe for him. We don't, we don't talk this way. Right? This is, this, is, this is not what we teach our students in confirmation. This is not when you, when, if you go to seminary someday, I know, I know, Kirk, you're going to go to seminary one day. They're probably not going to talk to you maybe at all, and certainly not first about salvation being this thing that other people can believe for you. But it is in this text, it is Jesus noticing the faith of this community of friends. It's an intriguing idea, isn't it? I think it's a necessary word for us to sit in. It may not even be the way the Bible primarily talks about faith, but it is a way the Bible talks about faith. And I think, therefore, it is worthy of us sitting down and noticing and getting out our pocket nights and, and, and digging around a little bit. Because our individualistic, Protestant, Bible Belt culture tells us that what primarily matters is my individual ability to conjure belief. That this whole thing arises out of me individually and that that is the primary thing that happens in salvation. But what do we do then when we individually have doubt? What do we do when we find it impossible to conjure belief from within ourselves? If the whole point of salvation is what I individually can give to God so that God can give me salvation back, what happens when I have nothing to give to God, not even my own ability to believe? When we experience doubt or grief, have you ever had a grief so intense that you wondered if God exists? You're in church and you're saying, I'm not allowed to say it. And I'm going to say, yes, you are. I have. You're allowed to say it in church. When you experience spiritual injury or deconstruction or trauma and we find it difficult to believe, what are we going to do when it all depends on my ability to convince myself that the God is real and the gospel is true? When it all depends on my individual faith and I don't feel faith, what do we do? We feel shame. This, this is why we would have a trouble in a moment when we're at church raising our hand and being like, yeah, like I've, I've wondered if God exists before or I've had a grief or a pain so strong I've wondered if God exists because, because we sort of do this cultural Bible Belt thing where we enforce shame on ourselves and each other if we admit that we actually have questions. We feel like we're letting everyone down. We're letting God down. We're letting our parents down. There are people, some of you, you it might, be, might be somebody in here, you might not have believed in God for years, but you're coming to church every week because you don't want to let your parents down. 
This happens all the time. We just, we just aren't honest about it. Because we've been told it all depends on me. But Luke's first mention of faith in this gospel is an absolute spicy challenge to our individualism. For Luke, from the beginning, faith is less an individual's tree standing on its own, braving the elements, come hell or high water. For Luke, faith is found in a root network of mutual support. It is a root network of mutual support. There are people who carry us with their faith when we struggle to have any. You know what that people is called? Church. There are people who are carried by my faith when they struggle to have any. There are people who will let us down before Jesus for a healing and forgiving word when we feel like we are letting everyone else down. Church is a place where people believe for you even when you can't believe. Do you know how I know this? You know how I know you believe this too? Because you attend a church where babies are baptized. Infant baptism is a direct challenge to our individualistic notions of I believe, therefore I'm right with God. You know why? Because a baby can't believe. There are no infants in this room who said the Apostles' Creed with us. <laughs> they didn't do it. And there is no infant in this room that when we receive communion in a few minutes is going to get up on their own and walk down here and say thanks be to God when they receive the bread and body, the body and blood of Jesus. They're not going to do it. In fact, even in their baptism moments, who makes the promises? Not the baby. Do you resist evil and injustice and oppression in all the forms that they present themselves? No baby is like, yeah, I do. <laughs> the parents make that confession, but not even just the parents. You make this confession. If you've been with me long enough, and you've seen me do an infant baptism, before I ask the congregation the question, I always give an explanation. These parents cannot keep these promises alone. They need a church to keep these promises with them. In baptism, we believe for these babies. They cannot walk forward to be baptized. We have to carry them. And we make promises that they can't keep, that they will never be able to keep. We make promises that we can't keep, we will never be able to keep. But collectively, maybe we can keep these promises. We make and keep these promises together as a root network because we know that sometimes individually we are going to fall. Which means I don't just believe for infants, we believe for each other. 
Sometimes it is really hard for you to believe, and that is where my faith carries you and gives you life. And sometimes it is really hard for me to believe. It is, I'm confessing this as a pastor, and I'm telling you, any pastor who says no about this is lying to you. Sometimes it is hard even for pastors to believe, and that is where your faith carries me. That's the promise we make for each other in baptism. That we have faith and are faithful for one another. But one of the problems with this sort of individualistic notion of faith is that we assume, Bible Belt culture, we assume that faith means certainty. This is, this is why we feel shame about admitting that we have doubts, right? Because we believe that faith is certainty, but belief is not certainty, and belief is not the ability to have all the answers. I know through the 1980s and the 1990s, churches were sold on apologetics programs that would give you all the answers so that you could answer the atheists and the scientists and whatever, as if belief were merely about cognitively understanding all the mysteries. But it is a mystery. And this is why I think we need to look a little deeper at the stones in this passage. In the ancient world, to be able to explain God's rationale, to do away with mystery and understand everything that happened, was especially things that happened in relationship to human suffering. It was as big a temptation then as it is today. You go to a funeral and you will meet someone who has an explanation for why something happened, right? We want certainty. That was a temptation then too. Justified by several Old Testament passages, and some Christians still believe this. Some folks in Jesus' day speculated that when a person had a disability, it was, because, it was a result of their own sin. Or maybe the sin of one of their ancestors. No, speculate is probably too soft of a word for what they taught and believed. Religious people armed with Bible verses go well beyond speculation, don't they? Don't we? We act like we know things that we don't know, the things that aren't ours to know. Now, I want you to notice the order of events here. What did Jesus say here? Your young man, your sins are forgiven. The order of events is that this man has not been healed. At this point, before anything else happens, all that's happened is that Jesus has simply said, your sins are forgiven, which is, you, you can't really prove that happened, right? Jesus says, Kirk, your sins are forgiven. Okay, how are you going to prove that? Right, you, you can't, you sit on the third row right in front of me, nobody sits in front of you, you get called out, Kirk. You, you can't prove that someone's sins are forgiven. But notice, Jesus has only forgiven this man. But in that worldview, when, a, when physical health is tied to somebody's relationship with God, to be forgiven entails healing. 
So the religious leaders have a very natural and obvious question. Their question is on point if you assume all the things that they assume and all the things that religious people usually assume. Who is this guy that he thinks he can forgive sins? Nobody can forgive sins except for God. This is literally blasphemy. If I stood up here and I was like, Kirk, your sins are forgiven, you'd be like, Tom, that's a bridge too far, man. Like you crossed the line because only God can forgive. So they think he's a charlatan. They think he's a blasphemer. They think he's a false teacher. He has pronounced forgiveness. And further, it's easy just to say your sins are forgiven. But if forgiveness entails healing, this man is still paralyzed. So clearly, a forgiveness has not occurred either. So he's just up here. They think Jesus is out here just spouting words. Trying to gain a following. Jesus jumped the shark. He's out here preaching forgiveness and the kingdom of God, all while failing to heal people, which would prove that he's the true thing, the real deal. But instead, he's just a charlatan. So Jesus asked this question. This question has always confused me until you understand that context I just gave you. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? Literally, here's what I did. I went back to the Greek and I pronounced both sentences out loud in Greek. Your sins are forgiven and stand up and walk. And I was like, I don't know. It's Greek. They, all, they seem equally difficult to say. I don't understand the question until you realize that they understand healing as a proof of forgiveness. So he's saying, which, which, which one is easier? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. It doesn't require any proof that anything has happened. But then Jesus turns around and he says, listen, your sins are forgiven and there is no objective way to prove this. It is harder than to say stand up and walk because that would prove I have authority not only to heal but to forgive sins. Healing is a harder thing to do because it would provide immediate proof. So saying you're forgiven is maybe weird, blasphemous, but what they really want is evidence that he can forgive. And Jesus says, I'll give it to you. Stand up and take your stretcher and go home. Again, notice that the man on the stretcher has done nothing. He's done nothing. Wouldn't it be wild for you to show up on church at church on Sunday morning and for me to be like, you know what? Your faith doesn't matter. This, this, this guy's done nothing. It isn't his innate goodness that leads to his healing. It isn't his ability to say the creed. It isn't his confession of faith. He is simply the beneficiary of the faith of his community and the grace of God. Simply being connected is healing. How many people in our contemporary world would be like, you know, simply being connected to a church, whether I believe or not, is, is healing? That is, that is not the reputation we have 
Ask millennials and Gen Zs what they think about church. And they have good reason for their suspicion. This man does nothing. He doesn't even have faith. His role is not initiation, but response. Now, I'm going to spell this out for the lifelong Methodists in here. Our Presbyterian friends, I'm not Presbyterian for a reason. I have major disagreements with historic Presbyterian theology. One thing they get right, I think they get the implications of it wrong. One thing they get right is that salvation is not primarily about what I do. And that even my faith is a gift of God. It is not something that I manage to conjure up within myself. My role is not, I, Methodists, this is what we think. We think sometimes it is our job to initiate this relationship with God. That, 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 that there was no relationship until one day we decided we wanted to believe and turn our life over to God. Again, this is why we baptize our babies. The baby didn't choose that. They don't even like it sometimes. The baby didn't initiate it. It is not about what a baby or you or me initiates or conjures up in our own hearts. It is not our ability to convince ourselves that these things are logically true and prove them. Our role is response to the God who initiated first with us. Do you see? I, I, I want you to feel the liberation of this. This is not about you. This burden is not on you. God is the one who initiates. God is the one who acts. We get to freely respond to get up off the mat and walk around and celebrate. We do not initiate a relationship with God. The kingdom of God is not one where we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Belief is not our gift to God. Faith is God's gift to us, carried to us by the root network of the people who raised us to love Jesus. The people who believe when we cannot believe. who believe when we are injured, who believe when we have questions, who believe even when we are unfaithful or when we don't have the cognitive ability. This is why it is so important for you and me to be pouring into our young people. Teenagers, middle schoolers, elementary schoolers, babies. We are establishing a root network of faith that will ideally carry them throughout their entire life. We're about, we're about to go figure out a place that you all can volunteer have a volunteer fair. Make it a priority to stop by anything that has to do with our students, or our children, or our babies. 
You got to, so, so you got root networks with each other. They need to come into this Christian faith knowing that they are not alone. So our role is not initiation. Our role is response. Which is what this man does, right? He gets up and he goes home and he tells his whole family the root network that sustained him his entire life and they all marvel that he's healed. This is the kind of church that I want us to be. A root network of mutual support sustained by the roots and fungi that is the life given to us in the body and blood of Jesus. So come together and receive communion together. You may feel this morning like you came in as a fallen stump. That's okay. You don't have to conjure faith. We got you. And more than us, the body and blood of Jesus believes for us when we have trouble believing.